Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the wake of the recent expiration of key provisions of the Patriot Act, our guest for the hour today on Access Utah is Frederick A.O. Schwartz, Jr., former chief counsel for the U.S. Senate's Church Committee on Intelligence and author of a new book, Democracy in the Dark, The Seduction of Government Secrecy, which is out from the new press. It explores key questions such as how much secrecy does good governance require? Short says that from George Washington's hiding his inadequate military supplies during the Revolutionary War to the National Security Agency's massive intelligence gathering, the Electronic Age, secrecy and democracy have been in tension. He contrasts the openness of past eras with what he calls the culture of secrecy today and describes a shift in government from keeping secrets in order to protect America to keeping secrets from Americans. And what he calls, uh, he calls for more transparency, he says there are signs that reform is possible. Frederick Swartz is chief counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. He was chief counsel for the U.S. Senate's Church Committee, as I mentioned, chief lawyer for uh, New York City, chair of its campaign finance board, charter revision commission as well. And for many years, he was a litigation partner at Kravath, Swain and more. He co-authored Unchecked and Unbalanced Presidential Power in a Time of Terror with Aziz Hook, and he lives in New York. Frederick Schwartz, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Well, I'm very happy to be on your show. We appreciate it, and a very timely discussion. Uh, the As we've all been uh, hearing, uh, the uh, key provisions of the Patriot Act were allowed to expire, and it uh, appears that they will be replaced by the USA Freedom Act. That's where I want to begin. I wonder your, your comments in general. Is this a step forward? Well, it's a great step forward. It wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. Maybe wouldn't have happened five or six years ago. It's a great step forward. And the, 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 re, the fundamental problem with what the government had been doing is that President uh, George Bush, when he, when he instituted the program of grabbing all the information about all the calls made by everybody in America, and President Obama, when he continued it, that they didn't have a democratic discussion. They just acted in secret, thereby depriving the public and the Congress of a chance to think about what they were doing. So that, that kind of secret action is dangerous to democracy, and we had a big step forward in the House a few weeks ago and in the Senate yesterday. Yeah, it appears that, the, that uh, well, it has passed the Senate, and uh, it looks like President Obama will sign it. Uh, I wonder if you could respond to, uh, this is a comment from just uh, in the recent debate from Senator McConnell, who uh, who wanted to, uh, you know, re-up those provisions of the Patriot Act, Section 215, and uh, was opposing the USC Freedom Act. Finally, he stepped aside and, and said, yeah, let it let it go ahead. It's, it's uh, you know, make the best of a bad situation from his point of view. This is his quote. He said, we're talking about call data records. Um, nobody's civil liberties are being violated here. That's Senator McConnell. Well, it's not true, because if, if um, the government knows the numbers you're calling— they can determine who your romantic friend is. They can determine who your doctor is. They can determine what political party you're supporting. So there is an enormous amount of information that is collected by the government if they grab all those details about every single telephone call. And that's why a huge bipartisan, and that's very important, majority in both the House and the Senate voted to eliminate that program to have the 
Telephone companies keep the records and have the government only able to access a record if they got a uh, permission from a uh, federal judge. And uh, this judicial approval, I think, would be obtained through the, the FISA, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court? Yes, that's right. How is that, in your view, how has that program worked? This has been in place for a well, while. Well, I think, I think as it was designed uh, after the Church Committee and in response to our findings, um, it worked well because it was just like a, a criminal uh, magistrate who uh, issues warrants um, for regular criminal cases. Where it began to go off is when the government asked it to become, in effect, a policy-making arm of the government and make policy decisions about what the law ought to be. That's very different from the narrow function that it was designed to have of uh, simply deciding whether someone could listen in on a telephone call or obtain a record about a telephone call. What about the other provisions of uh, Section 215 or uh, parts of the Patriot Act that were allowed to expire? Uh, for example, uh, the provisions to track a so-called lone wolf terrorist. Yeah, I mean, the, I think that got caught up in, in a wider debate, and um, I don't really have a personal problem with the ability to track a lone wolf terrorist if you go through the process of getting a court to say it's justifiable for you to do it. And I'd like to make another comment about the FISA court. People have observed that it grants most of the, or almost all, of the applications the government makes to it. What that misses is that when the government has to go to court to get permission to obtain records, it's simply not going to make the kind of absurdly broad requests, or absurdly broad efforts to get information that we uncovered with the church committee, where there was no um, uh, obligation to go to a court, and the uh, government was wiretapping the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or the uh, Eleanor Roosevelt or Supreme Court justices and lots of people who who did absolutely nothing wrong, but who J. Edgar Hoover suspected in some way of being um, calling for change that he didn't like. And now when they have to go to court, the government simply is not going to make a request to do something like that. So the law, but just by being in place, the law reduced abuse of uh, the privacy rights of um, Americans. Um, I was reading uh, reports on on the Freedom Act and the Patriot Act, and I'd I'd forgotten this piece of it. I want to get your comment on this. Uh, I'm quoting here, I think from this is this from the National Journal. Most notably, the bill they're talking about, the Freedom Act, would end the NSA's once secret interpretation of Section 215 of the Patriot Act. So the NSA's once secret interpretation um, which which was exposed by Edward uh, Snowden with with his his leaks. So I wonder. Uh, first of all, this uh, I'm sure you would say this this is a deleterious effect of of, of secrecy. If you're having interpretations of a law that uh, may or may not have been totally debated openly, but a secret interpretation by a government agency. Well, it's easy to see when you think about it why that's not something that's proper in a democracy. 
Um, and it turned out that when the courts finally got to consider the government's interpretation after the Snowden leaks, they held uh, just recently that the government had misinterpreted uh, the Patriot Act. So one of the great problems of secret interpretations of law is it tells the it does not let the Congress disagree with how you're interpreting their law. And uh, it is it is uh, inappropriate for the executive branch to make on its own a secret non-public interpretation of a law, not letting the Congress and the public. But I'm, my point I'm making is particularly not letting the Congress know about how you are interpreting the law that they passed. Mm. Uh, now, of course, Edward Snowden is a <clears throat> touchstone figure, controversial figure, anywhere from tra- been called anywhere from traitor to heroic whistleblower. What What do you think? Where do you place him? Well, I, I would um, leaving aside, you know, whether or not he acted illegally. It is clear to me that. Snowden acted for patriotic reasons. That was his motive. He was a patriotic person. And it's, that's, that's the first point that I think is important. And secondly, it's clear to me that Snowden's actions benefited the country. We wouldn't have had this debate about changing the overbroad collection of um, telephone data without Snowden. Hmm. Now, uh, you say that we have entered a um, an era of secrecy, and uh, there have been times that it were more open in our, our past. Um, I wonder if we take uh, take you back in, uh, your, you have a discussion of this in the book, to the Founding Fathers. As you point out in the book, um, government was smaller then. Uh, executive power hadn't grown to the extent that it has now, but there was a debate from the beginning of our democracy about about secrecy. Yeah, there was, and the the um, in the most important change is that from the beginning, in times of crisis, presidents have done things that, in the light of history, are thought to have been wrong and inconsistent with American constitution and inconsistent with American values. In World War II when Franklin Roosevelt uh, locked up um, Japanese-American citizens in concentration camps in the desert, um, locking up people who, against whom there was not an iota of evidence that they were doing anything improper. But that was at least a public act by Franklin Roosevelt. And going way back to the Founding Fathers, when John Adams in the uh, 1790s um, got Congress to pass what's called the Sedition Act that allowed people to be prosecuted and sent to jail if they criticized the president. Again, that was done in openly, so that when when the president acts openly, um, the public and the Congress and courts have a chance to disagree and have a chance to overrule what the president has done. The problem during the secrecy era, which starts around 1950, is that presidents, again, feeling a time of crisis, uh, act secretly, and the Congress and the public have no opportunity to um, disagree, to change, to limit what's been done. 
I want to uh, get into it. This is a surprising fact I learned from the book, which will illustrate maybe how governments and people make a transition on this. Um, I, I learned that Dick Cheney argued a, a pro-openness, anti-secrecy position during congressional Iran-Contra investigation. That, of course, diametrically opposed to his position as vice president. Yeah, I mean, the, the in, in my book, Democracy in the Dark, uh, it's for the first time I, I found, and it has never been reported before, that when in Cheney's 202-page dissent from the majority of, um, congressional uh, report on the Iran-Contra investigation, he said that important national security and foreign policy decisions should not be made except by an act of what he called democratic persuasion. And by democratic persuasion, he said he meant a full and open discussion with the public. So, and then he also said the government should not have excessive secrecy when they do when they make important decisions. And so that was what he said in in the 1980s. And then, of course, when he was um, vice president, he was a and still he is a strong advocate for the executive branch concealing from the public and concealing from the Congress important national security and foreign policy decisions. And Vice President Cheney, uh, you know, famously has become a, a very strong advocate for executive power. But I wonder, it's sort of become a national pastime, he's trying to get inside his head and the transformation here. Um, what do you think? Does 9-11 and, and increased security needs, does that have something to do with this? I think... I think certainly 9-11 was relevant, although the country faced difficult problems during the Cold War also. Um, I, I spend in the book, you know, five pages or so trying to psychoanalyze Cheney, and um, I think none of the answers are clear, but probably the most important likely explanation is if you have power, as he did as vice president, and he had an unusual amount of power, particularly in George W. Bush's first term, if you have power, it's very tempting to act secretly because nobody's going to mess around with what you think should be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, this is very relevant to to all of us because... You know, we all went through this, and and I think maybe at least some of us had a shift on this. Uh, that that uh, you know, in order to keep me safe, yeah, I'm willing to to cede to government uh, maybe more power than I wanted to before. Yeah, I mean, sure, it, it, fear is a, a huge factor, and it's not irrelevant. But it, we we went too far, and we did things that actually undermined our national security. T- take, for example, the the lapse into torture, which was illegal under American law and illegal under treaties. But when the United States engaged in torture, it became a wonderful weapon, propaganda weapon for al-Qaeda and other people who are our enemies. And, and in more generally, our great strength lies, one of our greatest strengths as a country, lies in our 
reputation for being democratic and open, and it was too tempting to throw that advantage away, and we did throw that advantage away or severely diminish that advantage by the actions we took after 9-11. And in fact, in the book, it's appropriate to bring this in now, you say you believe the White House had disclosed the many top-secret warnings it received in the summer of 2001 about forthcoming al-Qaeda attacks. 9-11 probably would have been prevented? Yeah, I mean, it, it is extraordinary how many very, very scary warnings they got about the likelihood of al-Qaeda attacks and language like um, spectacular, far more dangerous than ever before, many, many people being killed, calamitous results. And they did not, the White House, only eight, maybe eight people or so got these reports, and they didn't disclose them. Now, I make clear that I don't think their decision not to disclose them was malicious in any way. Nobody sat around and said, we want to deprive the American public of this information. Um, The problem is that secrecy puts you to sleep. Uh, And there are lots of examples in the book about how that's true. You, you, You stamp, something is stamped secret and you stop thinking. You say, well, it's secret, it's secret, it should still be secret. But that's a question which should be always one that people focus on. And I believe if the White House had focused on making those um, dangerous and scary warnings from the CIA public, it would have prevented 9-11. First, because um, the people, particularly in the FBI, who already were concerned about people getting uh, flying training who didn't look as if they really wanted to be pilots, and and they turned out to be some of the people who were the 9-11 hijackers. But nobody took that sufficiently seriously, and I think if the White House had told the uh, all the people in the government and the public about the nature of these warnings, those concerns would have been taken seriously and 9-11 would not have happened. And if the public had been told, they might have been a little sharper about, well, if if you're really trying to have a unusually spectacular attack, how would you do it? And I think uh, people would have said, hmm, pretty good thing to take an airplane loaded with hundreds of thousands or whatever it is of gallons of gas and use it as a flying bomb. So I do believe that although you cannot say anybody was malicious about that, the seduction of government secrecy, you know, that's the subtitle of my book, The Seduction of Government Secrecy. The seduction of secrecy kind of puts you to sleep, and they didn't think about, well, should it still be secret? So uh, uh, secrecy puts you to sleep. Uh, I wonder if you could expand on that. Put, puts, puts who to sleep? The, the person who is, is the owner of the secret mm. stops thinking about whether it still should be secret. In that sense, it puts you to sleep. Mm. Yeah. And it limits the input, I guess, and the, the, the creativity, the ideas you could have gotten from a wider pool of people. That's another point exactly. that you're making. Exactly. Let's take a break. When we come back, more from uh, Frederick Schwartz. His new book is Democracy in the Dark, The Seduction of Government Secrecy. And uh, this is a very timely topic, of course, in the wake of uh, the Patriot Act, uh, key provisions expiring, 
They're going to be replaced now, it looks like, by the USA Freedom Act. should mention parenthetically here that uh, Utah's Senator Mike Lee is one of the authors of the uh, Freedom Act. Uh, we'll talk about that uh, seduction of secrecy. We'll get into uh, appropriate uses of secrecy and uh, and the harmful effects of secrecy as well, and get into examples, uh, some of those perhaps from the uh, the Church uh, Committee on uh, Intelligence. Uh, uh, Frederick Schwartz was a chief counsel for that uh, seminal committee, and I'll have. Uh, Frederick Schwartz to read a passage from the book, this very interesting passage in which Daniel Ellsworth, famous for the Pentagon Papers, advises the newly appointed Henry Kissinger, 1968, about what's going to happen to him with super top secret uh, clearances. And that did indeed come to pass. More following the break. Next time on Living on Earth, our oceans have become a dumping ground. We could face disaster if we don't clean up our act. In 10 years, we may have one ton of plastic in our oceans for every three tons of fin fish. Getting rid of the plastic in the sea, that's next time on Living on Earth. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation. Sunshine Swing, a croquet tournament and lawn party. Saturday, June 13th from 1 to 4 p.m. Garden party, food and beverages, strolling musicians and other entertainment. The Old Crookston Homestead, 1491 East, 2300 North in North Logan. Details at sunshineterrace.com. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking with Frederick Schwartz. Uh, he is uh, former uh, chief counsel for the U.S. Senate's Church Committee on Intelligence. He's uh, chief lawyer for the, the formerly chief lawyer for New York City. He's currently uh, chief counsel of the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law. He's out with a new book, a very timely book, which is titled Democracy in the Dark, The Seduction of Government Secrecy. You're welcome to join the conversation. We uh, would love to know what you think about expiration of key provisions of the Patriot Act. What do you think about the uh, Freedom Act? And uh, what do you think about government secrecy? We've also been talking about Edward Snowden, uh, perhaps to talk about the WikiLeaks and uh, other uh, whistleblowers. And uh, what can and should be done? What further reforms perhaps are needed? The number is 1-800-826-1495, one 1495 uh, or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. So, Frederick Schwartz, I'm wondering about uh, today's technology uh, and the government is grappling with this and, and you know, how to keep things appropriately secret or in the view of some, you know, more, uh, more secret than necessary. But uh, I wonder on the other side, and, and, you know, a lot of us are concerned about uh, vulnerability in today's technological world of two or our secrets being being lost to the government or others. But what about the reverse? Do you think today's technology gives us, maybe just regular citizens, more power, more opportunity to divulge government secrets, to, to blow the whistle? Well, as well uh, sure. I mean, the, the, um, today's technology means that with Daniel Ellsberg, who you mentioned a while ago, it took him three months or something like that to at night copy maybe... 6,000 pages, and in the case of Snowden, millions of pages 
you can you can get and send by just pushing a button. So yes, the the technology does increase the risk to the government of more things being exposed. There's another very important and interesting element of the new technology because at the end of my book, I'm optimistic about the future improving as far as lessening secrecy and and getting out over the harms of our secrecy culture for two reasons. Reason number one is it's an it's not a partisan issue. And your mention of Senator Mike Lee uh, before the break is a very important part of that. He and Senator Pat Leahy, a, a progressive or liberal Democrat, co-sponsored the USA Freedom Act. And in the House, when the equivalent was passed, uh, it was by a majority of something like 340 to 80. So it was a huge bipartisan uh, majority. And I think the one reason for optimism is secrecy is not, even in our highly partisan world, a partisan issue. And the second reason why I'm optimistic in the book and optimistic as a person has to do with technology, uh, the point you were raising. And some of the smartest people at the CIA uh, and other government agencies are um, now saying we have more secrets than we need, and having too many secrets gets in the way of our primary goal today, which is the most important thing to do with information today is to get it quickly to the right person or persons. And um, if you have an overlay of secrecy that limits how you can distribute things, um, according to the smart people at the CIA and um, people who have previously worked at the NSA, uh, we need to get rid of having so many secrets so that it's easier for them to do their most important task, which is to get key items of information to the right person as quickly as possible. So for those two reasons, I'm optimistic. Uh, we have an email from uh, Steve in uh, Arizona. Uh, he says if you, you would permit two questions from a listener, uh, it would be interesting to know your guest thoughts on these issues. So first, the secrecy surrounding the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations. What if you have a, a comment on that? Yeah, um, I, I think, uh, you know, negotiation of a treaty, I think, can appropriately be done in secret. But before the country approves or the Congress approves, they ought to know uh, much more. They ought to know exactly what the uh, proposed agreement provides. And I think where there's a shortcoming in the discussion about the Trans-Pacific whatever it's called, TPP or something like that. Um, the shortcoming is that the uh, details are not available, and they ought to be before Congress is expected to um, go along with a proposed agreement. They should know what it says and, and, and not just know in little sort of um, you know bullet points. They should know exactly what it says. So there's where I think your caller, I think, is probably suggesting 
something of the sort that I, I agree with. And the second uh, point that Steve's making question is uh, uh, the asymmetry, I'll just quote him, the asymmetry between the government's obsessive classification of information, it goes to extraordinary lengths to keep its own activities secret from the citizens it's supposed to serve, and its many intrusive programs of data collection and surveillance of those same citizens who are not, it would seem, to be permitted to have their own secrets from government. This asymmetry flips on its head Thomas Jefferson's adage, when the government fears the people, there is liberty. When the people fear the government, there is tyranny. Well, you know, the, those founding fathers had a pretty good way with words, um, and Jefferson certainly did. And he, in the Declaration of Independence, he said a just government depends upon the consent of the citizens. Uh, and, of course, how are citizens meant to consent if they don't know what's going on? And therefore, you know, the excessive secrecy gets in the way of democracy. Or James Madison, uh, in, a, in another just great statement, said in a democracy... The um, true sovereign is public opinion. And right after that, the Congress passed a, a bill that subsidized newspapers going through the mails uh, because they, wanted, they, they believed that journalism was essential to democracy. The consequence, uh, which I discovered and report in the book, was that after a, a, a little while, the... Um, uh, the I'm getting awful noise up in my building. Yeah, we're 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 hearing a little bit of that, but I think it I think it's okay at this point on this end. Okay. Yeah. Okay, it's a drill somewhere up yeah, in the yeah. building. <laughs> but so the consequence of the Congress uh, subsidizing newspapers is that within a few years, ninety percent of the volume of material that went through the mails were newspapers, and only ten percent of the cost. Of uh, that was charged were charged to newspapers. So uh, the the country at the very beginning, uh, our founding fathers understood the importance to democracy of information and understand understood that information for information to reach the public you need journalism, then newspapers, but today newspapers, radio, and so forth. Your um, your chapter three has an interesting title: appropriate secrecy and its limits. And then you go on to talk about nine eleven, Cuban Missile Crisis, and where to drop the first atomic bomb. But I, I'm wondering, maybe you know, using one of those or another example, what what what's appropriate use of secrecy, and then when does it cross the line? Do you think? Well, I, I'll, I'll give example of a proper use of secrecy, and then when it's better not to be completely secret. I mean, one would say correctly that um, a, a military weakness is an appropriate secret. And going back, as, as I do in the book, to George Washington, um, he was in the hills around Boston, and he actually had very, very little gunpowder. And the Boston and the British were in Boston, and if they'd known how weak uh, Washington was, you know, they might have been able to push him out and and defeat us early in the Revolutionary War. So, in general, military weakness is something that's appropriately kept secret. But um, Gates, um, Defense Secretary Gates, in a his recent um, memoir 
about his time in mostly in in his Secretary of Defense, um, gave an example of where a leak greatly helped protect American soldiers. A leak about military weakness actually helped protect American soldiers. And what was uh, this involved were the so-called improvised explosive devices that blew up in Iraq under vehicles, military vehicles, and destroyed the bottom of the vehicle and destroyed the bottoms of the men and women who were sitting in the in the military vehicles. And there was a leak to USA Today about how slow the um, military was being in addressing this problem. And Gates says, well, that leak helped me push the government to get going, fix the problem, so that we don't have more men and women, you know, losing their legs and losing the rest of themselves, or big parts of the rest of themselves. So, um, or or take um, uh, a, a raid, a bombing raid. It certainly would never be proper to reveal a a plan that tomorrow morning we're going to bomb such and such a place because you'd be alerting the enemy and they'd be able to shoot down our airplanes. On the other hand, when uh, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger kept secret a whole program of beginning bombing raids on a neutral country, Cambodia, which was right next to Vietnam, and concealed that from the American public, that was that was something which, while it related to bombing raids, it was not a specific raid, but it it was the um, whole new program of attacking a neutral country. And in in that example, obviously the Cambodians knew they were being bombed and didn't think, you know, they knew it was the American airplanes that were dropping the bombs. So the purpose of the secrecy there was not to conceal something from the enemy, but to conceal it from the American public. You... And I, I, in the book, I try for almost every example of a legitimate secret to say, yes, that is legitimate, but watch out for taking the point too far. Mm-hmm. And you have you propose guidelines, I believe. Yeah. What, you could give me, uh, you know, it's a, just the... The, the highlights uh, there. What 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 shape would those guidelines uh, take? Well, you shouldn't do things that are illegal. Uh, you shouldn't do things for the purpose of hiding embarrassment. There are many examples of where uh, secrets are legitimate. Um, you know, um, take um, again military movements. A it would be clearly wrong to reveal a planned drone attack on a particular um, person. But the um, fact we have a program to uh, use drones is something which, as I think now is clear, ought to be known. And so the the Congress and the public can, can debate the broad contours of something. So in a way, the uh, narrow points often are legitimate, and overly broad uh, secrecy is is not legitimate. Let's uh, take another break, and uh, when we come back, I'll uh, 
I'll do what I uh, promise to do in this segment. We'll do that in the next segment. I'll have uh, uh, Frederick Schwartz read a passage uh, from the book, uh, Daniel Ellsberg advising Henry Kissinger. And this is, uh, this is pretty impactful stuff. And uh, we'll talk about the role of journalism. Ever more important, says uh, Frederick Schwartz, in a time, unfortunately, when um, resources are drying up for many sources of uh, investigative reporting, uh, what can be done there? More on uh, Democracy in the Dark, the Seduction of Government Secrecy with Frederick Schwartz following the break. This is Randy Watts bringing more to life. Will you be a caregiver? For the first time, adult couples have more parents than children. How do you prepare for this new role? Communication is key to success in any job. The role of a caretaker is no exception. Begin with your parents' wishes. Talk to them about personal goals, housing, legal, financial, and medical decisions. Some of these conversations may be easy. Some will be difficult. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Previously on Car Talk. It has, of course, in it a Mototronic uh, fuel management system. Motronic. Motronic. They had a choice of the Curlytronic <laughs> and the Larrytronic, and they chose the Motronic. <laughs> oh, right, the Renault and the Citroën have the Larry and the Curlytronic. Don't miss the fun this week. Join us for the best of Car Talk. Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our final segment with uh, Frederick Schwartz. He's author of the new book, Democracy in the Dark, The Seduction of Government Secrecy. And uh, one of the key questions which the book explores, how much secrecy does good governance require? And uh, these issues have uh, been debated recently on the floor of the Senate, also the House, but uh, more recently in the Senate, as uh, key provisions of the Patriot Act were allowed to expire. The USA Freedom Act was passed, and it does appear that uh, now, post 9-11, that we're moving uh, a little bit uh, further away from, uh, from, from secrets, a little bit more to protections. That's uh, so the way many see it. And uh, so uh, Frederick Schwartz, early in the program, uh, said he believes that this is a, a move in the right direction. We want to know what you think. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Or upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. Edward Snowden is out saying that he feels vindicated with the uh, recent developments. I want to know what you think on that as well. Uh, we're also on Twitter. You can join us at Utah Public Radio. So, Frederick Schwartz, I wonder if I could have you read this. This is the beginning of Chapter 7 in the book, page 133. Just that first uh, full paragraph takes up most of the, the page here. This is uh, Daniel Ellsberg um, advising Henry Kissinger, who's uh, just going to be moving into the, uh, the new Nixon administration. So you want me to read the paragraph? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. On a December morning in 1968, Daniel Ellsberg arrived for a private meeting with Henry Kissinger at the high-end Pierre Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. Kissinger, who had been designated as President-elect Nixon's national security advisor, 
wanted to discuss an options paper on Vietnam that he had asked Ellsberg to write. Ellsberg was a military analyst at the Rand Corporation and had been a guest lecturer on negotiation in Kissinger's course at Harvard. At the close of their conversation, Ellsberg warned Kissinger about secrecy and its allure. Quotes, You are about to receive a whole slew of special clearances, maybe 15 or 20 of them, that are higher than top secret. At the start, quotes, you'll be exhilarated by some of this new information. But then, quotes, almost as fast you will feel like a fool for having studied, written, talked about these subjects without having known of the existence of all this information. But that, Ellsberg told Kissinger, will be short-lived. Later, quotes, you will forget there ever was a time when you didn't have this information, and you'll be aware only of the fact that you have it now and most others don't, and that all those other people are fools. Indeed, even though there are limits to the super-secret data, you will become incapable of learning from most people in the world, no matter much how much experience they may have in this particular area, that may be much greater than yours. Yeah, that's a uh, that's very plausible. You could see how that would happen, to, probably to the best of us. It's a it's quite scary as well. Just There's the, a couple of interesting examples about how that seduction works, and one is there's. Um, a great deal of information available on the radio and in the newspapers um, all across the world that is highly important to our foreign policy and our national security. But the the CIA um, has a problem of not wanting to pay attention to that kind of information and almost feeling that it's demeaning to them to to pay attention to it and as a result they sort of downplayed the the section they were required to uh, create after 9/11 to study open source information and an- another example of the seduction of secrecy is you know there are it's hard if you're a government official to have important people read your memoranda. And about 20 years ago, there was a CIA head of the CIA who said, indeed, unless something is uh, stamped top secret, nobody is going to read it. And the effect of that is that secrecy spawns more secrecy in order to get people to pay attention to what you have. You want to, you know, make sure you got a, a secrecy stamp, top secret, or as, as Ellsberg pointed out, there are many clearances much higher than top secret. Mm. Uh, and the now we are having each year about 100 million documents are stamped secret. And that mountain is just so high that it creates the problems that the smart people in the CIA are saying, gee, we got to do something to cut down on those mountains to really do what's important, which is to get uh, information, important information to the right people as quick as possible. And if I could make just one other point about Kissinger, he had this very close relationship with Ellsberg, and he continued after he was national security advisor to ask Ellsberg 
to come out and visit him and give him advice about Vietnam particularly. But then when Ellsberg seemed to be and was um, the the White House was uh, challenged, was uh, going after him, and Nixon said, we want to destroy him, and they had meetings in the White House about how to destroy him. Interestingly, and not to Kissinger's credit, Kissinger never said, well, you know, I worked with him extensively in the past. I think that is quite revealing about a a fault for Kissinger. Mm, Yeah. Uh, So I wonder, we're we're just uh, have about five minutes left. I wonder what your prescriptions to change this culture of secrecy are. Well, I think knowledge is is the most important thing. Um, and that's, that's the reason I, I wrote the book, was to try and increase public knowledge about the dangers of excessive secrecy. And then I think um, the, there, is, there is a good chance, as, as I said um, earlier in the interview, that because the issue is nonpartisan, uh, is not partisan, and because the smartest people in the intelligence agency are saying, wait a minute, we've gone too far, I think there's a good chance that the culture is going to change and people are going to say, well, it's just not right to conceal whole programs from from the public, and that's inconsistent with democracy. It's inconsistent with Abraham Lincoln saying we have a government um, of the people, for the people, and by the people. And, of course, you can't have a government by the people unless they know what's going on. So um, I think most, more knowledge is the most important thing. I, I think um, it's really good that, again, to use the example of your senator, that um, your senator from Utah, a Republican, and Pat Leahy from Vermont, a Democrat, came together and wrote the USA Freedom Act. Uh, that that's an encouraging sign. Just for the last uh, couple of minutes, I want to talk about the role of the press. You uh, wrote in The Guardian recently, I'll just quote this, whereas in the past, past rather, the press served to disseminate information, journalists' new vital role is discovery of information. Yes, I mean, uh, today with the electronic world, um, dissemination is handled pretty well by others than journals. I mean, you know, everybody in the world gets information quickly and is able to get it out immediately. But discovering things, journalism is still essential for. Um, the, it, there's an interesting point I make, I make in the book about how the government is actually better, better off that it lost the Pentagon Papers case where it tried to get a what's called a prior restraint, which is just a fancy legal word for preventing papers from publishing something. It tried to get a prior restraint against the New York Times and the Washington Post about publishing the Pentagon Papers, and and the government lost the case in the lower courts and in the Supreme Court. And I say the government actually is better off because it lost that case. Why? Um, the reason why is today when journalists get a, let's say they get a leak or they do some investigative reporting uh, without a leak and come up with something that is secret and they think newsworthy and important, what they generally do now is to tell the government they have this story and they're going to write about it and then ask the government 
is there anything in our draft story that is going to really in put it let's say put an individual's life at risk uh, that we don't we don't recognize but that you may be able to to warn us about and most of the uh, journalists today do engage in that kind of a discussion with the government which they would not if the Pentagon Papers case had gone the other way the journalists would not have the discussion with the government because they would be afraid that the government would prevent them from publishing the story but now they at least talk to the government and find out if there's something they didn't recognize that's dangerous about the story now that's a good and healthy progress practice it's not improper to uh, have those discussions with the government and then just let it sit for a long time like i'm i'm critical of the new york times for holding for a year their story about the government going back to warrantless wiretapping that they eventually published in 05 but they'd had the story for a full year and i think that holding the story for that long was not appropriate we will end it there uh We have been talking with Frederick Schwartz, author of Democracy in the Dark, The Seduction of Government Secrecy. Mr. Schwartz, thank you so much. Well, I enjoyed it, and and I love your state. And we had a nice guy, Pat Shea, who was on a young staff member on the church committee, who I think I know lives out there in Utah. Right, right. Very well-known Utah, uh, headed up the BLM for a while. And uh, yeah, so you have a connection to him. Well, great. Yeah, hope hope you'll come out and visit. Okay, thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. And uh, join us tomorrow uh, for Access Utah. We'll have an interesting discussion on police, police use of force. Utah lawmakers are studying this very timely and important issue. One of our guests will be State Senator Jim DeBacchus. We'll have other guests as well. Police use of force tomorrow on Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. Commentator Thad Box. Conflicting roles for military and civilian gun use create a patchwork of varying opinions about the 24th Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The feel of my rifle comforts me. I support our Constitution and the Second Amendment. They relate to arms, not guns. The people delegate regulation of whatever arms to elected officials. Regulating most arms seldom cause angst. A concealed pocket knife, for instance, is legal in most states, but switchblades are forbidden. Some states allow swords to be carried openly. Most forbid flamethrowers or grenades. But mention regulating firearms and gun lobbyists yank the strings of their puppets. Utah legislators posed for pictures holding a state gun a lookalike assault rifle similar to the one used in the Sandy Hook school massacre. Another legislator proposed a law that would allow anyone to carry a concealed firearm anywhere in Utah. That would create a nightmare for law enforcement. When every peace officer's life is endangered with a simple traffic stop, the security of a free state will not long endure. A well-regulated militia and the security of a free state Both rely on having accurate, timely data available. Our bearing of arms should include identifying every firearm in America 
and holding its owner responsible for its use. To own an automobile, we must have a title to that vehicle. It must be registered annually and pass safety inspection. To drive our car, we must personally pass a test, obtain an operator's license, and protect others by carrying liability insurance. Those data are on a national register electronically available to peace officers. What we do for automobiles, we should do for firearms. Unregistered and concealed firearms could be confiscated. Churches, homes, businesses, schools, or organizations could accept or exclude people with guns or knives or dogs or smartphones or whatever from their private property. I've worked in Australia and Switzerland, countries with strict gun regulation, and in Somalia and Nigeria that have little regulation. There's no question in my mind that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is much more secure in countries with strict, reasonable regulation of firearms. This is Thad Box. Now that the May deluge seems to be over, at least for the time being, it's time to turn your attention to getting those warm season crops in before it's too late. If you've already planted them, in some cases it may be better to replant rather than try and nurse plants along to recovery. This Thursday on the Zesty Garden, USU Extension Vegetable Specialist Dan Drost is here to take your questions and comments, along with the petals and pros from Helen Cannon about the development of the potato bean. It's the Zesty Garden, Thursday mornings at 10 from Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. Today on Utah Public Radio, the time now, 10 o'clock.